All right, guys, welcome to today's episode of the Locked On SEC Podcast, part of Locked On Podcast Network. I'm your host, Blake Lovell, and on today's episode of the podcast, an interview with Rocco Miller of Bracketeer.org. Uh, he is someone that just does fantastic work when it comes to breaking down the NCAA tournament selection process itself, as well as uh, where teams stand uh, heading into conference tournament week here uh, for the major conferences in college basketball. We specifically talked about the SEC and uh, where teams stand uh, as they get ready uh, for their first game uh, in the conference tournament and what their potential paths are to making it to the NCAA tournament for the teams that are on the bubble and uh, for uh, you know what the potential seeding could be for some of the teams that, that are projected to make it in. And we covered a lot, um, just uh, you know, a, a lengthy interview, but I think it's one uh, that there are little random nuggets along the way that uh, will give you better insight uh, into this year's NCAA tournament as well as uh, just the NCAA tournament selection process. So let's jump into the interview with bracketologist Rocco Miller. All right, guys, I'm here with Rocco Miller. Um, he is the, uh, I guess we're going to call him the resident bracketologist of the Locked On SEC podcast. And Rocco, the reason you are the resident bracketologist is because you're the only bracketologist I've had on uh, thus far in the, the month I've been doing this show. So so that has to feel good, right? It feels great, Blake. It's an honor. <laughs> and I uh, pre- appreciate you following along over the years. It's good to be on the program. Yeah, no, great to have you on. And, and as I've, I've sort of teased uh, heading into our interview, Rocco does uh, great work on bracketology. Uh, you can find his stuff at bracketeer.org. I'll include that in the show notes. Um, and you can also uh, find him on Twitter at Rocco Miller 8, which will also be in the show notes. That way you can follow everything that he does. And he, he does great work. And that's why we wanted to have him on, because I know this is a, a time of year as we head into the SEC tournament where people are wondering uh, about their specific team, what are their chances to get into the NCAA tournament if they are already feeling like they are in, what's their potential seeding, and that's what we're going to cover uh, here. But Rocco, before we do that, you know, I know there are a lot of sort of misconceptions when it comes to the the NCAA tournament process, and, and you probably can't blame people because it has changed throughout the years. We've added a lot of different metrics uh, and all that now, but I guess in simple terms, and we were laughing before, before we started recording, there's a ton of steps that goes into uh, picking the NCAA tournament field. Uh, but the simplest way you could describe it, that, that people could probably have the best understanding of how the committee goes about selecting these teams each season. Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded question, as you mentioned. But, yeah, just to simplify it, so you have 12 committee members. There's a chairman, and this year that's Mike White, the athletic director at Duke, and the vice chairman – is actually there out of the SEC uh, Athletic Director Mitch Barnhart out of uh, Kentucky. And um, the 12 members are uh, on a rotating basis. So I think every year there's two new members that enter in. So that gets pretty interesting because I know from like 2014 to 2018, we had a majority of Power Five members. And now last year and going into this year, we have a majority either mid-major to low-major. And I think that can make a little bit of a difference. Last year, we saw Belmont get one of the last spots in, as well as Temple, two teams that weren't in the Power Five. We were seeing a little bit more of a struggle with that from 14 to 18, for example. But when these um, when these 12 folks get into a room, there are a lot of different rules they follow as they go through the process. And I've been fortunate enough to, to work with the, our friends at Hoops HD on their mock selection committee, where they actually bring a very diverse uh, group of people. A few of us are actually full-time bracketologists throughout the season. Other guys work for universities and just want to do this as a hobby. And and then a couple other guys that specialize in analytics and rankings. So we kind of formed our own 12-man committee. And 
the guy Chad Sherwood that runs that he actually has this whole thing memorized and and so we're we're starting our our process now this week just like the real committee is and the first thing you do is everybody submits a list of 36 locks for the tournament so we're basically putting our top 36 teams in like no matter what happens in championship week these teams are getting in and they cut that off at 36 and then from there you basically will vote on your top eight to start the process. Once the group consensus, uh, it's basically a cross-country scoring system, uh, so the weighted top eight then gets voted down to the top four, and uh, alas, we have ourselves the number one seeds. And then as we go on to seed line two, seed line three, seed line four, all the way down, uh, we're adding four more teams to the pile. So you're, you're constantly voting out of a group of eight for, for four spots. And then once you get down to the, the first half of the bracket gets filled out, that's our top 32 teams, eight seed lines. If you're following along, um, then we will actually, the process starts getting pretty complicated from there. <laughs> so I'll, I'll kind of break it off there. But we start getting into uh, situations where we then have 12 teams and we're only voting for four. And sometimes nobody can agree on those four. And that's where it gets pretty interesting. And that will take, a, that, will take that first part of the process, we get done in about a day. And then we spend two days on basically the nine through nine seeds through the rest of the bubble. And that's where it gets fun. Yeah. And see that, I think you bring up a good point is that this is a very complicated process. And I always say that to to people every year. It's like, you know, imagine all the people out there that like yourself and everyone else who, who does great work bracketology wise. And then you're, you're looking at the committee and thinking just how much goes into all this. It is not a simple process. And there are so many, like you've mentioned, so many different metrics, so many different things that go into it. Um, you know, you know, and I, and I know there are always fan bases that are going to be happy, uh, upset when it comes to whether their team gets in or not. But Man, it sometimes I know it, it, just looking at it each season, it's so hard to differentiate some of these teams, and that's like you said, having to go through it all. I mean, it is. It, it's a process, isn't it? <laughs> it really is, it, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Blake, because you know I think everybody today probably realizes the net is the premier sorting tool designed by the NCAA. They haven't given us the full breakdown of what is heavily weighted or if they're evenly weighted, but we know that it's made up of the team value index, uh, their efficiency rating, their D1 record, their weighted D1 record, and margin of victory is included. But apparently that's capped at 10 points. But we know because of the efficiency and some of the other components that if you do beat a team by 30, it means more than beating them by 10. So it, it's um, it's a pretty complicated uh, formula in itself and 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 uh, not 100% known how we get to these answers that, that the net gives us every morning. Uh, and I think that kind of... It, creates a, a world of uh, confusion for different head coaches that I've talked to. Um, but the, the other components that actually show up on the team sheet for the committee to look at is we now have five other metrics that are listed, and that is the KPI, Ken Palm, Sagarin, the BPI, and I think the most interesting one is the strength of record. And I've just been hearing a lot more chatter about that this year versus last year because we do have cases like in Northern Iowa who lost in the Missouri Valley Conference Tournament but had a great uh, regular season. They beat a team at Colorado that's going to be in the field. Um, how do you differentiate a team like that and a team like Florida, for example, out of the SEC who plays, you know, has a ton of opportunities throughout the year? Sometimes you need another metric or two to, to make that tiebreaker, make the picture a little bit more clearer because, as you mentioned in the question, some some of these team comparisons are just – uncomparable um like if you had east tennessee state compared to indiana how do you do that yep. uh so they need the, that extra assistance and they found out over a long period
period of RPI era, that that wasn't the end-all, be-all, and, and it left a lot of people unhappy. So I think this is getting to, to a closer, better solution, but it still isn't the perfect solution. Well, there's part of the process, as we just talked about. And, and again, there's a lot that goes into it. And uh, coming up uh, here on the Locked On SEC podcast, we're going to go into the SEC. And uh, as I've talked about on the podcast for a while, as Rocco, many other people have talked about, it's been quite an interesting season for the SEC in terms of the bubble picture. And uh, we're going to look at those teams uh, coming up here on the Locked On SEC podcast, part of Locked On Podcast Network. All right, Rocco, let's get into the path for some of these bubble teams in the SEC. And uh, I think a couple weeks ago, we were looking at it, and, and at least I was, feeling a lot better about the SEC's potential to get a fifth team in. If we, We'll talk a little bit about the locks here in a bit, but uh, the bubble teams are the ones that are getting the focus right now. And let's start with Mississippi State, because I, I think Mississippi State's a very uh, sort of interesting team in that, you know, I think if you look at their overall resume, um, there may be, I mean, they've gotten to 20 wins, and I know we don't really look at that anymore. It seems like a while back it was always, okay, if a team gets to 20 wins, they're in great shape. Not necessarily the case anymore. Um, it's about who you beat. Now, if you look up and down their resume, you know, I mean, they've beaten Florida. Uh, they've got a couple wins over Arkansas, but really beyond that, you know, I look at Mississippi State, and their non-conference really was not – uh, impressive in terms of what they were able to do there. Uh, but yet, I guess if you look around at most people, and I know I think you may have it a little bit differently, actually. Um, most people seem to think they're the closest of these SEC bubble teams. But the more you look at their resume, I think, and this is what I told people, probably if you're Mississippi State, you're rooting hard to get the opportunity to play Florida in the SEC tournament quarterfinals, because if they were to play Georgia or Ole Miss, um, you know, then you're probably looking at, at really potentially needing to win the tournament to get in. Uh, so I think my advice to Mississippi State fans would be hope for the best possible matchups because I think they just need more of a punch on their overall resume. I'd agree with that, Blake. I think that's the biggest problem is one of the key metrics the, the committee starts looking at, especially for those final few spots, is you know, how did you fare against tournament teams, especially if you're coming from a Power 5 conference where you get a bigger chunk of opportunities to do so. Um, unfortunately for the Bulldogs, they've only got that one win at Florida, albeit it's a really nice win. It's on the road. It shows that they can get wins away from the hump. I, I think uh, there's just not a, a big collection of wins or just at least a handful. Um, so, yeah, they, they should root for the Gators so they get a chance to prove themselves. Uh, that will happen uh, if it does on a Friday. So uh, the, the other thing to keep in mind is what we covered in the first part of the show, which is how the selection goes about their process. And what uh, what the trend has been recently is the, the committee starts wrapping up their work earlier and earlier every year. In fact, last year, you know, the um, out in the Pac-12, they, they had their work basically wrapped up before the Pac-12 championship, which was kind of a big surprise for me um, based on the fact that you had a team in Oregon there that – uh, that needed to win to get in. So they basically yep. built some contingency brackets, but they weren't going to consider them in at large. And I think if um, Mississippi State or maybe some of the others that we are about to discuss get that far to the final, uh, I don't think it's going to mean much. I think they got to get that Florida win and then make, make the committee think a little harder. Well, and then I know there's a, another team that has an interesting case, and that's Arkansas. And they're the one that seems like, you know, we – we talked a lot about Arkansas in terms of, of how is the committee going to view them during that five-game losing streak they had without Isaiah Joe. And I kept saying, look, you know, I guess if you look at it, if you're just someone, an observer like I am, 
you could watch Arkansas in those five games and realize that, you know, if Isaiah Joe's probably on the floor, they they probably win two or three of those games. But but that's the what if game, right? We could we could only play that mm-hmm. so much. And and now since then, you know, he's back on the court and yet they've still, you know, lost to Georgia, they've lost to Texas A and M. Two games that really they could not afford to lose. And I thought that, you know, yep. after that five game losing streak and now, you know, looking ahead at their potential path here. Um, a lot of people are asking the question. They're like, well, how many are wins does Arkansas need? There are some people that think it's three, some think it's four, some think they need to win the whole tournament. Um, I think there are a couple layers to this, Rocco, at least the way I look at it. You know, this team finished seven and eleven in the SEC, and this is not the seven and eleven from a season ago. And I think that's the biggest thing that's probably going to hold this team back is they're four games under five hundred, even without Isaiah Joe on the court. They were four games under 500 in a league that is nowhere near as strong as it was last year. And now you look at their path. I mean, potential, they have to play Vanderbilt. That is a win that, that's not going to do anything for them resume-wise. Then you're potentially playing South Carolina, who we'll talk about in a second. Again, not a projected tournament team. And then, you know, you've got LSU and you've got, you know, you've got options from there. But I don't know. What, what would, you, as of right now... I mean, do you do you think it is as simple as Arkansas is going to have to win the SEC tournaments again, or is there a case to where let's say they were to beat LSU, maybe get a matchup with Auburn, they beat LSU and Auburn, those are two big wins, get to the tournament, play Kentucky, whoever, losing the championship. Do you still think there is a likely scenario in that case they would get in? But either way, I'm of the opinion they probably are going to have to get to the championship to even have a chance. I tend to agree with you, Blake. I, I think the important, I think it's really easy come championship week to get caught up in the, in the bracket and, and having the path. And, and it, of course it is very important, but I think over the years, the committee has proven more and more that it is about the body of work and everything you did leading up to this week. It, you know, every game you play is, is that percentage of your story. And so even if they get an LSU win on Friday, which I think is possible. Yeah. And I also think, I also think it shows that Arkansas can compete at an NCAA tournament level, and they have a very intriguing case. Um, I, I think it only means as much as the resume shows. But here's the good news: the good news is, is Arkansas had 13 games in the in the bottom two quadrants. I think you can you throw out the four that were in quadrant four, but the nine and zero in quadrant three yep. is it means a little bit. You know, it shows they won all the games they were supposed to win. And it shows that uh, they also had the 12th toughest non-conference rate to schedule, which is another stat that the committee loves for these final spots. If you have a strong non-conference rate to schedule, it shows that you went out and played people and you, and you did well against that schedule. So Arkansas has got a compelling case because not only do they have the Isaiah Joe injury story, but they also have the non-conference rate to schedule. They also didn't take the, the really bad loss. And that actually starts to stand out against some of the rest of the bubble. So, I think if they do get through Friday with a win over LSU, I think it does have to be um, against the Tigers. Uh, I think they'll be heavily discussed if they can get to Saturday morning. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by that. Uh, and, and, you know, it won't be easy to win their first game. Vanderbilt's playing, uh, I guess, as well as anybody in the SEC yeah. right now. So um, not going to be easy for the Hawks exactly. to, to get to that point. But, uh, yes, I do think they are probably the most fascinating one of these SEC bubble teams just based on their case. Um, but we'll see. Like we said, it's, it's going to take a lot of wins. But uh, if they were to get there, um, that they could be one of the teams that we're really talking about among those bubble teams. Um, let's go through these two teams. And then I want to discuss what I think maybe I mentioned Arkansas is the most intriguing but I think there's another team that that could be in that category based on how their bracket sets up 
Alabama and South Carolina. Only way those two teams get in is by winning the SEC tournament. Would you would you agree with that, or, or does South Carolina maybe have a chance if they were to let's say get to a championship? Yeah, I like Alabama's path because you know they could start off with a win over Tennessee, then they get the chance for the big win against Kentucky right off the bat, and then uh, they get to the semis and they could possibly play the Gators. That would give them the chance to get two wins over tournament teams. So that that does look nice. <laughs> However, the the bad news for for the Tide is that no matter when they lose in the SEC tournament, if they don't win the whole thing, that gives them that big 16th loss, which yep. you know no team in history has been selected with 16 losses. The two with 15 losses that have been selected are right there out of the SEC in <laughs> 2017 and 2018. But um, I, I think there's enough good resumes out there for the committee to choose from. I don't think they're going to entertain a 16 loss team this year. Um, and unfor- so unfortunately for Alabama, I do think they have to win out. Um, as for South Carolina, you know, they do have the path potentially if they can get a win over Arkansas, who has a good net ranking and then beat LSU and Auburn. I do think going into that final, it'd be pretty intriguing. However, I still have a hard time seeing them get selected just because they've got those two really ugly losses in the last quadrant. And that still counts for something, and it, it is going to stand out against it, whoever they're compared against. And I just think that uh, that Vandy loss really kind of did them in over the weekend, unfortunately. Let me ask you this, and this is just a quick sidebar. Um, you know, you mentioned South Carolina's losses. You know, Boston University was one of those losses, and yet here yeah. they are having a chance to, you know, win the Patriot League. Um, this is a question right. people have asked over the years. How would that, you know, let's say, how would that impact a team, you know, like South Carolina, who who did lose that game to Boston, you know, way back when? Um, let's say they were to, you know, win this this conference tournament, get in. Does does that have any sort of significant impact on that loss, or is it just because it's in a certain quadrant that's just sort of what it comes down to? Because a lot of people have asked that question over the years when it comes to some of these bad losses. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I I honestly think. You know, once you're kind of in that bad loss category, there's little uh, reason to usually double click on it and see exactly how it happened and who it was against. Yeah. Unless, you know, like Kentucky's Evansville case is a little bit more interesting because they're getting, you know, deciphered between a two, three, or four seed, right? So all of that stuff gets a little bit more critical. I think for South Carolina, if they, if they win the uh, automatic bid, you know, they're going to have enough good wins going through this tournament plus what they did in the season – to really stand out against teams like Vermont or Akron who are going to be around that 12, 13 area. So I think South Carolina would at least be at 12 and maybe be able to play up to an 11. Um, but if we're talking for at, lar- at large purposes, it starts to matter a little bit more, but uh, by and large, you, you can just see, you know, you, you look at a group of five teams at the same time, you might only have one team that has this problem. And so that could easily happen in South Carolina's case. And it's not um, – honestly, I don't want it to be the end-all, be-all because it's not. If you have the good wins, they usually will outweigh the bad losses, but you got to have enough to supplement it. And in South Carolina's case with Boston University and Stetson, um, and, and I do want to answer your Boston University question, if they do win the Patriot League, it does fall under this special category they have for <laughs> games against teams in the field. It starts to look a little bit prettier than it, than it has all year. Uh, so maybe that gives them a little bit of help, but overall, you're still kind of looking at it in the quadrant. Um, but they've got they they would have the wins to outweigh those losses. 
Yeah, that, that's what I, I thought was very interesting because a lot of people are, are not really sure how that would work because, like you said, it, it's it's usually a very small amount of, of cases each year that we're even having that conversation. Um, all right, the team that, right. that, that I really am fascinated by, and, and I know I said that, I said that about everyone, but uh, especially this team because I think that their, their case has gotten more interesting, and that's Tennessee. Um, you know, I, I think several weeks ago – we we weren't sure exactly what Tennessee could possibly do or even have a chance to, to be in the spot. But the one thing I kept bringing up was that, probably aside from Texas A&M, in terms of the last five games of the regular season, Tennessee had as tough of an SEC schedule as anyone, probably aside from Texas A&M. Um, their last five games, they played Auburn, Arkansas, Florida, Kentucky, and Auburn. Um, you know, but they, they were able to get those two wins against Florida and Kentucky, and I thought that was certainly significant because winning at Kentucky, as we've talked about, winning on the road against a team that could potentially be a number two seed somewhere in there, um, that's pretty significant. And you go back mm-hmm. and look at everything else Tennessee's done. Uh, you know, they have some other good wins along the way. I mean, I guess the, the Vols, their case is looking a lot more interesting right now, isn't it? It looks interesting because they got that win at Rupp that just really stands out, especially compared to most of the bubble. They also beat Florida at home. They won at Alabama. Uh, unfortunately for the for the balls, Bama didn't end up being a tournament team. But some of these other wins, like they beat Washington up in Canada, they beat VCU on a neutral court down in Florida. Uh, although those teams didn't end up playing up to their potential this year, their their net rankings holding strong. So there is some some decent meat on the bone. Uh, but, but right now the problem is is they've got the 14 overall losses, and so now. Um, I hate to keep bringing up history because I do, <laughs> I do think every year is different when every committee is different, but there is a precedent that they like to follow. It's almost like if you have a court case and you have a, you get assigned a judge and he's never dealt with a case before that is your situation, he's probably just going to look up another jurisdiction or another state to get the precedent to make his ruling. I feel like th- the selection committees do do the same kind of thing. And in the case of 2017, um, I believe it was 2017 Vanderbilt and 2018 Alabama with Colin Sexton, they both got in with 15 losses, but they had tremendous wins, multiple elite wins. And this Tennessee team does have the one, but I don't think it's a big enough cluster, even if they beat Kentucky a second time on Thursday. I, I just don't think it's, it's, it's good enough because right now they're 3-11 and against the first quadrant. That's severely, you know, under 500. And then – you, you factor in the first two quadrants, even with a couple wins, they're still 10 and 13. Uh, they're 8 and 13 today. So, uh, and a loss in, in the third quadrant, be, getting beat by A&M at home. So I, I just think the Vols don't, don't match up to those two other cases where the 15, C, uh, 15 lost teams got selected. Uh, I, I would love to see another SEC team, tr- you know, find a way in. I just, I think it's going to have to be Mississippi State out of all the teams we've discussed or maybe Arkansas with the, the the scenario we put together. Well, lots of lots of what ifs uh on the bubble game uh as we have yeah, certainly yeah. <laughs> well documented <laughs> at this point. Uh but coming up, uh we will stop talking about the bubble and focus more on the teams that are going to get in. Uh, we're going to run through um some of the scenarios and we have some uh, mailback questions uh for some of these teams that are projected to make it from the SEC. We'll get into those coming up here on the Locked On SEC podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. 
All right, uh, let's talk about uh, some of the teams that are going to get in, and we're pretty much just going to focus on the mailback questions because, believe it or not, uh, our fine listeners uh, and Twitter followers have actually done a pretty good job of covering the bases here on most of these teams uh, that are going to get in. And I think um, some people are asking about Florida. David asks, um, does Florida need to win on Thursday to get a bid, or are they in danger of falling out of this thing? I think Florida is mostly safe. I, I think even if they fell, they've done enough this year uh, to show that they belong. Uh, I think I think the fact that they got that Providence win and that Xavier win on neutral court, um, just you know, the Providence one just got better with age. They're clearly, if not the hottest, one of the hottest teams nationally. Uh, I think Florida has done enough on their home court to, to warrant. You know, they have four total wins against the field. And I think they're just, they've just done enough. They've got a great net. They've got a great non-conference change of schedule. Uh, during the bracket reveal show that we saw at the, you know, at the beginning of February, we know for a fact that this committee cares about strength of schedule as well as your net ranking, as we saw with Auburn. So I will say that the Gators are safe, and I, do, I see them landing either at a 9 or a 10. If they lose right away, it won't be better than a 10. So I think that's where they stand. Yeah, and that kind of answers the next question uh, from CLT Gator. Uh, he wanted to know, you know, if you're Mike White, uh, what would be the difference between a 7, 8, 9, 10 seed this season? Um, <laughs> you know, not great either way, but but as we've talked about throughout the season, Rocco, I mean, you know, the one and two seeds, how about that? Let's say you are Florida. Is there a significant difference in your mind if you wind up in that 8-9 game or the 7-10 game um, just based on, on maybe what we've seen from what are going to be the top you know eight seeds in terms of the top eight teams in this tournament? Yeah, and this is more of a little bit of a prediction question, but I like it. And, and I think the answer historically would always be better to be a 7-10. You can look at all the statistics. A 7 or a 10 has a much better percentage chance to get to the second weekend. However, this year, it's an interesting question because I think the two line is going to be pretty loaded. Um, you know, uh, you have Florida State probably lands there now, and I have Villanova Creighton as the last two, but Kentucky can move into two. Obviously, Florida won't play on their same side, but uh, Duke could land there. And, and I think, you know, there's teams on the one line, like Baylor's started leaking some oil. Uh, Dayton's been awesome this year, but perhaps they're susceptible to an 8-9 loss because, they haven't been challenged by a team of Florida's caliber in the last couple of months. So I actually think like being in an eight, nine is not much different than a seven ten for this specific year. Yeah. I find that very fascinating too. And with LSU, we don't have a question on this one, but I'm curious uh, for LSU right now, do you see them falling in that same, are, are them in Florida sort of very similar in terms of where they could fall? I've seen a lot of people anywhere from probably eight to 10 on LSU right now. Yeah, I think LSU just a little bit higher than Florida today. They're my last number eight seed, so they're 32 overall. And then I, I think, you know, they've just done a tremendous job of um, not only scheduling well this year, they played anybody and everybody uh, from the mid-major ranks, and they won won a few, obviously lost to ETSU. Um, but I think that that helps in a year with the SEC down. You know, you kind of needed that extra non-conference love. Uh, so I think LSU's done a little bit better than Florida is in terms of their body of work, and they can certainly afford to lose and get in. Um, but they would maybe maybe ten would be their worst case scenario. But I think they are probably an eight nine. 
And now for Auburn, uh, Josh asks, uh, what does Auburn need to do to get uh, a four seed? Uh, I guess depending on, you know, obviously it matters what everyone else does, but uh, let's say for Auburn, um, what, what's what's the best path to potentially being a, a top four seed? Yeah, so Auburn's going to, of course, get the winner of A&M Mizzou. they got to win that, and then they get to the semis. I think the best path, of course, is just to play a strong opponent, which would be LSU. Beat LSU uh, and maybe get some help around them. You know, a few of the teams above Auburn, interestingly, are Big Ten teams. Only one Big Ten team or two Big Ten teams are going to – only two Big Ten teams will get to the final. Only one's going to yep. win, the, win the thing. So you know some teams are going to lose. You've got uh, right above them is Ohio State and Wisconsin on my on my board. You also have a BYU team right in front of them that if they don't beat Gonzaga, that gives Auburn a little bit more wiggle room to get back above them. And then there you go. You, you, right now, Auburn's my number 19 team. All they got to do is get up to 16 to be a four. Um, so that's certainly in play, but they got to get a little help and they got to get to the finals of the of the tournament this week in the SEC. Would you say Auburn's biggest flaw in their resume this season, uh, which, you know, they've only lost six games, but the fact that, that four of those have been on the road and by double digits, um, would that would that be a significant difference maybe if only half of those, uh, you know, let's say that they, they won two of those four or didn't get blown out in two of those four, uh, which I know a couple of them weren't necessarily blowouts. They were 10 and 12-point losses. But um, would that probably be the difference between Auburn maybe even being up, up another seed line at this point right now? I love that you asked that. I think that's a, that's an important difference because once you start, of course, the higher up the seed list you go, uh, the more the more impressive you got to be to move, keep moving up. And yeah. so you got to have a strong road record, especially against the top two quadrants. Right now, Auburn is still under 500 in that area. Uh, they also just, you know, unfortunately, schedule wise, didn't have, didn't win the games against the field. You know, their best wins are still at Mississippi State and a neutral court win against Richmond. Uh, a, a Richmond team who I, I I do have making the field, but barely. So they they really haven't even had a win against the top half of the bracket uh, to speak to. So it's it's been um, an interesting year because they've their metrics are great. You know they've dominated in a lot of the games they've played, but there's just kind of that missing piece of the resume that the committee likes to see. However, because these uh, this committee particular seems to like a really good record, a really good net, and a really good strength of schedule. Auburn still has their way to uh, their chance to play up into a four. I just don't think they can get above a four. Yeah, that's going to be interesting with them. Um, and speaking of that, we, all this time we, we've talked for thirty minutes, and I think we barely mentioned Kentucky, which uh, that kind of shows you where the SEC is at right now. Um, yeah. But uh, with the Wildcats, so we don't have any mailback questions on Kentucky, uh, but. Uh, for them, you know, I've seen a lot of Kentucky fans talk about, uh, you know, what what's the highest ceiling for them. I'm going to assume that's can they, there is a path for them to get a two seat at this point, right? I mean, I, I would think, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to be in that one conversation, but uh, there is at least a pathway if they, let's say, win the SEC tournament. Um, do you think it's pretty safe to say that they're going to have a, a pretty legitimate shot at a number two seed? I, I think it is absolutely. So I have Kentucky. Kentucky clinched the SEC regular season a week ago or so. Uh, if they get the double, what's called the double is, you know, just winning the regular season and the conference tournament. The committee loves that. And they've, they've always historically rewarded teams for that, even if they uh, may not have a stronger resume. I've, I've now moved Kentucky above teams like Duke and Michigan State uh, for today because they, the difference between them and Michigan State and Duke is that they have a championship. If Kentucky gets a double championship, you know, we'll watch one of these Big East teams fall between – Villanova or Creighton, and there you go. You got your room for the two seed. Um, so I, I do think Kentucky will land there if they can get the win. Um, obviously, we could see 
a, t- a team like Oregon or a, even a team like Seton Hall who shared a championship behind, who are behind them today uh, come up and make their claim for a double. I just think the way Kentucky won the SEC outright and that if they go out and dominate in Nashville this week, it's going to be almost unfair to not make them a top two seed. Yeah, Kentucky got a lot of those doubles uh, over the years. Uh, they got a lot of regular yeah. season titles and tournament titles <laughs> uh, used to, it. to go along with it. But <laughs> yeah. all right, Rocco, we're going to wrap up. I know everyone was waiting on this when I mentioned the word mailbag because no doubt that our friend Chimp, uh, who always uh, weighs in with his questions in the mailbag, uh, he had to offer several here, and uh, we're going to do them uh, rapid <laughs> fire. As always, uh, he is the MVP of the mailbag segment. Uh, that's not to knock everyone else, but uh, I think we all know at this point uh, what Chimp brings to the table. He's got three here, Rocco. We're going to run through them. Uh, his first one is, and I know this is harder to predict, but uh, which which SEC teams will be forced to play in Spokane and Sacramento? And I know a lot of Auburn fans have seen some of the brackets and seem to feel like that they are probably going to wind up uh, in Sacramento if they are, uh, let's say, on that four seed line or somewhere in there. Yeah, Auburn certainly has that chance. You know, for the 4, 5, 12, 13 area of the pod is essentially the leftovers. Right now the leftover areas are Tampa, St. Louis potentially, and then, of course, Sacramento, Spokane are, are definitely going to be in that leftover category. The reason for it is San Diego State will take the Sacramento, Gonzaga will take the Spokane, and then there's going to be nobody else until you get to either Oregon or the first four seed uh, to send out there. So. Uh, I'd say coin flip if Auburn gets out there or not. They could, if they play their way up to a four and it doesn't make sense to send anybody else to Tampa, they could get a nice break and land in Tampa. So just keep your eye on that. <laughs> I know a lot of Auburn fans are going to be rooting for that. Um, all right, yep. Chimp, second question. Uh, I think this is this is probably a pretty easy one, but uh, we'll answer it, Chimp. Uh, which SEC team, uh, you're going to make your prediction here, Rocco, which SEC team advances the farthest in the NCAA tournament? I will, uh, yeah, I'll take the safe play and go with Kentucky. I mean, they've they've got the goods to you know win the thing, especially the way they played in in uh, February and and most of, I mean, basically every time out for the last two months, if besides the game against Tennessee where they fell apart, but um, obviously tons of talent, tons of Calipari uh, expertise to guide them through the process. So uh, yes, I'll I'll take the layup and go with Kentucky. All right, and then he saved the best for last, as he always does. Um, which Rocky movie is your favorite? I'll go with Rocky Four. I, I always loved Rocky Four. Um, I would probably say three or four, which I think three gets a bad rap sometimes. But but I think I would pick three or four. Yeah. I, I would probably lean on four though with you though. I, I think it's just you can't go wrong uh, with Rocky uh, versus Strago. So uh, there you go, Chip. <laughs> thanks as always for your questions, everyone. Thanks as always for your questions, uh, Rocco. Man, this has been a lot of fun, and I'm really excited that, that we did this because, uh, like we said, I know a lot of people have questions this time of year. When it comes to the NCAA tournament, when we're right here before the conference tournament, everyone wants to know what do we need to do uh, to improve our standing in the tournament or to make the tournament. Um, and I know that that's always a question. And I think we we covered it very well, my friend. And uh, as I, I said earlier, you do a great job, and I uh, really appreciate you coming on. And uh, we will uh, plug all your stuff in the show notes and uh, look forward to talking to you again here soon. Hey, Blake, I appreciate every, all the work you do. I know you work really hard at this, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to finally join the show. I'll look forward to doing it again with you soon. All right, that was the conversation with Rocco Miller. And, um, again, great to have him on the podcast. Uh, I teased it earlier, but uh, you heard it in that interview, just uh, tremendous insight into 
the NCAA tournament and how it works uh, and just being able to to look at each of these teams and understand uh, kind of where they are at uh, heading into the conference tournament for the SEC uh, very important because uh, he you know he he pretty much put it as simple as you can in terms of what each team needs to do if you're on the bubble to make it into the NCAA tournament and for the teams that are already projected to make it in uh, what do they need to do to improve their seating in the tournament so uh, should be a very fun SEC tournament uh, especially in a season like this one. But as always, uh, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Just go over to any podcast app you use. Search for Locked on SEC. Be sure to take a few seconds. Leave a nice five-star rating or review. That just helps the show reach more people. And uh, for everything else, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at DeepLakeLevel. And if you're looking for more listening material here on the Locked On Podcast Network and you're excited for the upcoming NFL Draft, uh, just tell your smart device to play the most recent episode of Draft Dudes uh, for great uh, NFL Draft insight. That'll wrap up this episode of the podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening, and I'll talk to you guys next time here on Locked On SEC Podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network.